decided that their demands should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of God for the people of God. All right, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad you're here. Um, especially if you're new, I want to welcome you along with Austin. I'm kind of moving out of the sun, so I'm step by step. Okay, that's good. Um, if you were on a flight uh, to Atlanta, say 45 minute flight or something like that, and somebody were to ask you, um, you know, if you were, they were to find out you were a Christian, and they were to ask you, what is the essence of Christianity? Uh, what does um, the Bible teach? If you had to sum it up in a really short amount of time, uh, think about what you would say to that question. Uh, it's an important thing to, to have at your fingertips an answer to that question. Uh, it's a very important question, and the stranger Christians become in our culture, and, and we will become stranger, um, the more important it is to be able to answer that question. So uh, I hope somebody has asked you that at some point, and if they ask me that, I might refer to this passage. Uh, this passage is a wonderful summary of the essence of the Christian faith. And um, I'm thinking about two things in particular. Uh, number one, uh, the sin uh, of the human race that you see in this passage. And there is no better description of the sinfulness of the human race than the fact that when God comes near, we shouted, crucify him. That's to God to our maker, our creator. And then the second thing is that even as we're shouting crucify to him, he is actually substituting himself for us to pay for our sins. It's remarkable. At the very moment they're shouting crucify, crucify, Jesus is substituting himself for Barabbas so that Barabbas can go free. And we are essentially Barabbas, who we're on death row. And yet Christ comes and he substitutes himself for us. So that is the essence of Christianity in one depiction. I would take them to this passage and I would explain to them this is what the gospel is all about. The good news uh, proclaimed by the early church uh, and down to this very day. So I want to look at those two things, sin and salvation. First of all, um, sin is not about making bad choices. Um, it's got nothing to do with you know, sexuality or eating an apple or something like that. Uh, it's not about these individual acts that we do that like are, are wrong. I mean, those are part of it, but essentially sin is this attitude towards God where when God comes close to us, uh, we like repel him. We, we want nothing to do with him in our natural state. So if you are interested at all in God, that's because God actually has done something to your heart to change you. It's actually very encouraging uh, that, that we are uh, essentially like this. Our hostility is so great that when God comes near, we shout, away with this man. You know, Jesus is God in the flesh. He comes to save us. We say, away with this man. I want nothing to do with him. And then we say, crucify him, crucify him, verse 21. The whole crowd that, is, um, that once chanted, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest, and waved their palm branches as he came into Jerusalem a week earlier. The same crowd is saying, crucify him, crucify him. We want nothing to do with this man. Now, this is very careful. Uh, you have to be very careful about this because this has been used 
to promote anti-Semitism. And um, a lot of times Jewish people are called Christ killers in certain Christian contexts. And that is exactly the opposite of what this is teaching. Uh, it's not teaching that, that the Jewish people are especially bad. It's teaching that they were especially good. And even the best culture ever, the most enlightened, most virtuous culture ever in the history of the world, the Jewish culture, created by God, by his law, the very people of God, even they shouted crucify. That's the point. It's not they were extra bad, it's that they are extra good. And even the best, even the very best culture did this. So uh, I was talking to a guy about a month ago, and he said to me, um, you know, if, if Christ came today, I don't think that, that we would have done this. Like if Jesus came today, we would, we would welcome him, and we would be very nice to him, and you would ask him a lot of questions, say, like, I, want to, I want you to teach me, you know, this, that, or the other. And I said, no way. No, we're not, we are not any more enlightened than those first century Jewish leaders. Um, if he came to America today, he would be absolutely crucified or he would be given the death penalty. He would be electrocuted, something like that. He would be killed by Americans, no doubt about it. And, you know, I don't care what culture you're talking about. You could be uh, some Native American culture who sometimes people think are like inherently peaceful. That's not true. Uh, South Asian culture, North African culture, all cultures, no matter where he came, we would crucify him. And that's the nature of human sin. It says in verse 23, they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And notice, this is not like mob violence. This is not an uh, impetuous jolt of like a tantrum or something like that. Uh, crucifixion was a, an enactment of justice. This is a judicial sentence from the powers that be that when God comes near, we say, it is our considered moral opinion that God should be executed. It is our highly considered moral opinion as a human race that God deserves to die. And that's what Christianity teaches about the human heart, that it, that it is very, very wicked, uh, to use a term that's tough to hear. But there's no, there's no other way to put it, that it's wickedness, it's rebellion. And the whole story of the Bible is God coming closer and closer and closer, and he finally is ready to embrace us, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And what do we do when he's hugging us? We stab him in the back. We want nothing to do with him. Even God's own beloved people want nothing to do with him. And I think about Jesus, uh, my wife was telling me that if you can imagine Jesus having like an ancient brain, so like if you think about Jesus back um, with his own people in the Old Testament when he was delivering them out of Egypt, you know, the Son of God was delivering his people out of Egypt, the angel of the Lord, and he brought plagues upon the Egyptians, and then he gave his people his law, and then he came and lived with them in the tabernacle, closer and closer, and, closer. and Jesus is remembering all of this stuff, and now he can actually touch them with his hands, and he can heal people. He's been healing people his whole life and forgiving people, and doing nothing but good works, and they say, away with this man. And at this point, you know, it's really important for you to kind of get in touch with whatever that is in your heart that doesn't want God. Uh, there's one famous uh, Puritan theologian who said that we are allergic, allergic to God by nature, that um, we don't really want to be with him. You know, why is it that you would rather read any book instead of the Bible? That if you had like 30 minutes to read a book, the last thing that you want to read is, is the Bible. Um, why is it that if you have a certain chunk of time, 
And you can either pray or wash the dishes. You will wash the dishes almost every time. Why is it so hard to get here? Why is it so hard to come to pray? Uh, why is this? Because our hearts are naturally inclined away from God. Inclined away from God. And that's all of us. Um, the secular leaders, the religious leaders, the crowd, Barabbas, Herod, Pilate, everyone in the story, we want nothing to do with him. So that's, that's the first point. Uh, sin. That's what sin is. It's pretty dark, but I think it's very realistic. There's no book other than the Bible that tells the human race what we're really like. One reason I believe the Bible is actually true is because it tells us things about ourselves that no other book tells us. Uh, that nobody else wants to tell us because it's so hard to hear. And, and that's why I think it's very reliable, because it tells us things we would never want to hear. I don't think it's written by humans. I think it's written by God about us. And he's saying, this is, I have to tell you, this is the really bad news. You know, you have cancer. You have a really bad diagnosis. This is terminal. So point one is sin. And point two is, for that very reason, because we are so opposed to God and hostile to God, we cannot save ourselves. Because when God comes to get us, we push him away. Like the Heisman, you know, the Heisman Trophy and, you know, that, that, that symbol of the stiff arm, that's exactly what we do to God. When he comes. So if, we, if he comes near and we push him away, then how can we save ourselves? We can't save ourselves. God's got to come and he's got to rescue us. He's got to overcome our natural antipathy to him. So the only thing that we bring to our salvation is a hammer and a pair of nails to nail him up to that tree where he saves us. So that's point two, salvation. So let me kind of walk through the story a little bit. Pilate is Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome. Uh, he is the Judean official who's in charge of this district of the Jewish people. Okay, so that's who Pontius Pilate is. Um, he would have been like a, a regional governor of Judea. And uh, Pontius Pilate has already disappointed Rome one time. Uh, there, was a, there was a Jewish revolt, and uh, Pontius Pilate was a little bit too uh, tyrannical. A little, he got a little violent, and he put down this Jewish revolt, and a lot of people died. And Rome was not happy for Pilate botching that job. So Pilate has been a little too harsh, and the Jewish people don't really like Pontius Pilate. And so in this story, he is facing a very angry crowd, and, and Pontius Pilate's scared. Uh, because he doesn't want that crowd to revolt again. And that's why he is pandering to the crowd so much. That's why he doesn't really stand up for justice very much. Is because he's afraid that if he does that, they're going to revolt again. He's going to have to put down a lot of Jewish people, and he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to screw it up again. So uh, the angry crowd is pressing him to crucify Jesus. He doesn't want to do it. And he finally thinks of this, like the nuclear option, this, this desperate Hail Mary pass which is, I am going to present to the people, two people, uh, Jesus and a man named Barabbas. And I'm going to say to the people, every year I release to you a criminal who's on death row, and I present to you both Jesus and Barabbas. And if you look at verse 19, it says that Barabbas was a man who was thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. So Barabbas is a monster. And Pilate is counting on the fact that the Jewish people don't want anything to do with Barabbas. They don't want Barabbas back on the loose, a mass murderer, a terrorist. Uh, this is like Osama bin Laden. They don't want this guy out in the, um, in the city again. 
And so what Pilate is thinking is if I can present to them Barabbas and Jesus, and you've got to pick one, surely they're going to pick Jesus, not Barabbas. But he was wrong. Because it says in verse 21, they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so eventually Barabbas is released and Jesus goes to the cross. And this is where you get into the essence of salvation. And it's, it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. I think verse 25 captures the, the idea of substitution. Sometimes it's called substitutionary atonement. Um, and what you see in verse 25 is the essence of substitution. It says, Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and he delivered Jesus over to crucifixion. And there you have the substitution right there. The, the guilty man goes free, and the righteous man is punished. And that's the essence of Christianity right there. So imagine you're Barabbas. I like to think about Barabbas watching this from his prison cell. He's in, he's in maximum security prison. He's a super predator. He's on death row. And, and he knows his time is very short. And he's sitting there watching the proceedings from his prison cell. He's watching you know, Pilate on his, um, his seat. He, he would sit on this bima. That's what the name of the seat. He would sit on this bima and judge. And he was on, this, he was on his seat. And the crowd was in this courtyard. And Barabbas is down in his prison watching all this stuff. And he's not sure what's going on. He's hearing these shouts. Uh, he doesn't know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, the prison guard opens his door and leads him out. And he brings up Barabbas next to Pilate. And so on one hand, you have Barabbas. On the other, you have Jesus. And Barabbas is like, what is going on? And, you know, he knows Jesus is innocent. He's heard stories about Jesus. He knows that Jesus is uh, the, the, the miracle worker, the healer, the one who forgives people's sins. So he knows that this guy over here, who is beaten to a pulp, by the way, he knows that this guy is completely innocent and he knows that he is utterly guilty. And yet suddenly, the crowd starts shouting his name and saying, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Like he's a hero, like he's a celebrity. They're shouting his name. Release to us Barabbas, says in verse 18. And so as Jesus goes to the cross, Barabbas walks home free. And He's not running. He's walking past the guard. He's no fear of arrest. He's totally innocent. And as he walks out of Jerusalem, he looks back up over his shoulder, and and there he sees Golgotha. He sees the cross. He sees a man taking his place on the cross, pierced to that cross, and he says to himself, that should be me. And even as he breathes a sigh of, of relief as a free man, he knows that Jesus is gasping for breath, dying for him, and paying for his sins. And that is the good news of Christianity, that Jesus will take your punishment if you put your faith in him. And in taking your punishment, you will be declared innocent forever, which is the best thing that you ever have happened to you, because your biggest problem in life it's not even your sin. It's certainly not any broken relationships. Your biggest problem in life is the fact that you are objectively guilty before a holy God, and that is paid for by Christ on Calvary. Your greatest problem in life is taken care of. And you're not just innocent in the eyes of the state 
like Barabbas, you are innocent in the eyes of God. You are cosmically and eternally innocent. And this is very applicable because you think about the voices of accusation you hear. Um, Austin and I were sharing stories about how incredibly hard it is as pastors to feel accused. Um, and I've, I, have been, I have been accused of wrongdoing, and somewhat rightly so. Uh, uh, you know, several times as a pastor, people have been accusing me, and, and one person even took me before another pastor and accused me, and it was really painful. It makes you want to hide. It makes you want to quit to be accused. And just think about the voices in your head that accuse you, and you need to tell those voices, look, if God says I'm innocent, then I am innocent. And, you know, I might have harmed you, but essentially and fundamentally, as a human being, a creature made in God's image, I am guiltless. And Jesus came to destroy your guilt. And so why would you hang on to it? There is no reason to hang on to that eternal sense of condemnation when Christ came to pay for your sins. And three times in this passage, Herod, I mean, uh, Pilate tells Jesus, uh, verse four, I find no guilt in him. Verse 14, after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty. Verse 22, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. Three times, Pilate says he's not guilty. And in the same way, when you come before the judgment seat of God at the end of time on the last day, God will say to you, as many times you need to hear it, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. I paid for his sins, I took his place, and she is free now. She is forever free and never to be condemned again. And this meal right here that we're about to partake in, this is the embodiment, this is the drama that depicts the substitution. That on the night that he was betrayed, it's very important that we say that on the very night that he was betrayed by the human race, by Judas, by everyone, on that night that he was abandoned and betrayed, it was that night that he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. I'm giving you my body. I'm giving you my life. This is my body broken for you. I'm going to die for you. In the same way he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. So whenever we drink from the cup and whenever we eat the bread, we're proclaiming once again that we have been given the life of Jesus, eternal life at this table, and he has taken our eternal condemnation on himself. All of our perishing, all of our self-destruction, he has paid the price. And that's what we celebrate at this meal. So, I always like to say, when you come to this meal, um, when I was not a Christian, I did not know what to do at this point in the worship service. And I, I went to churches when I was an atheist, and uh, when it came to communion, you know, I enjoyed the sermon, I liked listening to people sing, that was all fine. I did not know what to do when communion happened. And so I'm telling you right now, don't feel any pressure to partake. If you're not ready to do that, if you're here and you're not sure what you believe, then like Austin said, we're so glad you're here. We don't want you to feel any pressure to partake of this meal. But if you want this meal, I don't really care what you call yourself. If you want your sins paid for, and if you want to trust yourself to, to Christ and his substitutionary atonement, then come and get it. This is for you. This is a table, because we come up here as beggars. We don't come up here as people who are righteous. We put our hands out like this and we say, I need your grace, Lord. I need you to pay for my sins. And so everyone who wants this gift of God is welcome to come up here. So let me pray for us as we come to partake. And as I'm praying, uh, if those are going to serve with me, y'all can go ahead and come up here while I'm praying. Uh, Father, uh, we are so grateful.